0: Thank you, Brenda. Great song. We'll be in John, chapter six this morning. John chapter six. I'm telling you, I pray the church is going to tilt this way today. And realized I stood up here. There's a lot of people over here on this side, and uh, I'm glad y'all here today. Uh, if I was going to title the message this morning, I'd call it uh, "Passing the Test." You know, some folks have a love-hate relationship with. With tests. And uh, when I think about tests, and some of y'all have heard this story, but I got to tell it again because it's applicable to the situation. All right? When I was an undergraduate, um, let's just say the thorn in my flesh was Spanish. All right? My degree required uh, a foreign language, and you know, you could take, uh, there at Wachita, you could take um, Spanish, you could take French, you could take. You know, to a lot of folks, English is a foreign language around here. Folks have been speaking it their whole life, you know, but uh, I decided to take Spanish, and with all the wisdom of an undergraduate, waited till my junior year, you know, to take Spanish one, and and I went through what I knew I wasn't doing good. I went in the uh, the week before finals, almost on my knees, begging the professor, and she said, "Oh, Jeremy, just come take the test. You'll be fine." she lied. I failed, have an F, on my college transcript beside Spanish 1. So, Spanish 1 was only offered in the fall. Now, I could have gone and taken it to community college or something over the summer and transferred it back, but I didn't want to do that. Waited until my senior year, went back, got a different professor. This one's name was Jennifer Lopez. Not that Jennifer Lopez. But that was her name, and I went back and I took Spanish one again. I made a C. Very proud of that C, you know, when I frame it. Uh, but anyway, I took Spanish two the very last semester of college. You know, very last semester. We are coming down to my Spanish two final was to be the very last final exam of my entire undergraduate career, so to speak. And it was on Friday. Graduation was on Saturday. Grades weren't due until like Monday or Tuesday of the next week, you know, I'm thinking I'm going to be walking across this stage Saturday, all my family watching, and I don't really know if I graduated or not, <laughs> because I wasn't doing as good in Spanish 2 as I had done in Spanish 1, and so I went back and on my knees almost there with uh, Professor Lopez, and I said, ah, please, I've already been offered a job at SAU. Dr. Rankin's already offered me a job, and and I have to pass this class. I have to graduate. And she said, oh, Jeremy, just come take the test. You'll be fine. I said, no, 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 you don't understand. I've been told that before. It didn't work out. And so I woke up the morning of my graduation with an email from her that says, congratulations, you got a D. She didn't say I earned a D. She said, I got a D. I think she gave it to me. She was being generous. But I graduated. Barely. Sometimes tests prove something about us, and for me, it was that I can't speak Spanish. I only really need to know enough to order at Antigua's. That's about the extent of what I need to know, and, uh, you know, of course, I can just point, I guess, if I can't pronounce it, but I'd never stress so much over a test, and but tests can add a lot of stress to us. You know, has got a lot of school kids in the crowd. Of course, adults, we face tests all the time, just in life, but... This morning, we're going to look at a very familiar story here in John chapter 6. It's it's the feeding of the 5,000. And, you know, so many times we look at this and we focus on the miracle because we like the big, the flashy, the miraculous works that Jesus did. And they are so fun to look at. But before we ever read about the miracle, the story tells us that Jesus gave a test. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning as we read John chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. John writes, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, uh, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him, because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain... And there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. Stop right there for now. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that we can read these stories about the interactions of Jesus and and the disciples, and we can see even the tests that he put them through and learn so much about our own relationship with you. Father, I pray that you would teach us this morning as we study your word. And ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let, Let's see the background here before we really dig in uh, to this familiar story. If we were to look back uh, throughout uh, the other gospel accounts, all the gospel accounts have uh, this story about feeding uh, the multitude and according to Luke's gospel, which we find in Luke chapter 9, the 12 apostles had just returned from this, uh, great, the great mission trips Jesus had sent them on. Uh, they had been on this, this preaching and healing tour of the entire region. Jesus gave them the authority and the ability to heal people and to teach people uh, the gospel. And, and, and Luke chapter 9 verse 10 says, And the apostles, when they had returned told Jesus all they had done, and he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. So that's where they've gone to. As we read here in John chapter 6, it says they went across the Sea of Galilee where they landed and where the rest of this takes place is in this city or outside this city called Bethsaida. And Mark chapter 6, in Mark's account of this story, makes it very clear in verse 31 that the reason they went there in the first place was to rest. I mean, they'd just gotten back from this long journey. I tell you, when I get back from a big trip, you know, I've got to rest to recover from vacation, don't you? And we drove a car. Well, they didn't travel by car, They're a lot more tired than you or I would be coming back from the trip. They're exhausted. Jesus takes them to Bethsaida to rest. But we've already read what happened. The crowd saw where they were going. These guys have stirred up or they've caused quite the stir with all the teaching and all the healing they've been doing. Jesus already causing quite a stir with his own ministry, and the crowd sees, and the crowd follows him. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that Jesus spent the day at Bethsaida healing people. So much for resting. And then evening's coming, and the story tells us that this uh, multitude... We're told in the Gospels that it's 5,000 men, not including women and children, maybe 10,000 people, maybe 15,000 people. We don't know exactly for sure, but it's this huge crowd, and they're hungry, and you know how you get when you're hungry. And Jesus says, we've got to feed these folks. And all of this leads to an innocent question that I'm calling the one-question test. The one-question test, verse 5. Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? That's the test. Now, I've looked at six different commentaries on the Gospel of John to see Uh, what these guys had to say, these people that are a lot smarter than me, uh, had to say about this question and about this test. And why is it directed at Philip? You know, I mean, we don't usually, that's not a name that just pops out when we think about leadership among the disciples. And it's interesting what these other commentators had to say. They pointed out that if we really study the Gospels, we'll find that Philip may have been what we might call in modern days something like a chief operating officer of the disciples. That he was uh, kind of the go-to guy to get something done. We know Judas was the treasurer. He kept the money. Maybe Philip was the go-getter. If Jesus really needed something, that's who he looked to to get the job done. If we uh, turn back uh, just a couple of pages to John chapter 1, we find another very interesting piece of information. In John chapter 1, uh, look beginning in verse 43. Uh, The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from where? Bethsaida, the city of Andrew, and Peter. Where is this all taking place in John chapter 6? Bethsaida. Now, just back for the kids to understand, Back in that day, Jesus couldn't pull out his iPhone and search bakeries to find where to buy the bread, okay? What do you do before technology? What did you do when you were somewhere that you were not familiar with and you were looking for something? Well, probably probably unless you were a male, you stopped and asked directions, right? Men have the reputation of not wanting to do that. But you stop and ask a local... A lot of times, we even do that today. You ask a local, where's a good place to eat? I've never been here before. I want a good local place to eat. Well, Jesus, maybe he looked at Philip and said, hey, you're from here. This is your hometown. Where could we find enough bread to feed these people? Maybe that's one of the reasons Jesus asked Philip. But when it comes down to it, we really don't have to wonder why Jesus asked Philip the question because verse 6 tells us, But this he said to test him. Jesus asked Philip the question to test him. Jesus didn't ask the question because he needed to know where to buy bread. He asked the question to find out just how strong Philip's faith really was. That's the nature of a test. When we're tested in school, it's to find out what's in our head. Did we really absorb the information that the the teacher or the professor or whoever it is stood up there and lectured about, the things we've learned in class, did they really sink in up here? But see, when Jesus tests us, or when Jesus allows us to be tested, it's to find out what's in our heart. It's to find out how strong our faith is. That's the nature of a test. It's the same Greek word used there for test, as is examine in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, where Paul tells the Corinthians, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Paul here is warning the Corinthians, they need to ensure that the things they believe are in line with the teachings of the Christian faith. Examine what's in your heart. Examine and make sure what's in your heart aligns with the teachings of Jesus and as we have today, the completed canon of Scripture. Because God's Word doesn't change. It's a steady compass that always points us towards our true north. Society changes. The Bible says, I don't trust your heart. Our hearts are evil in and of themselves. So we need to test them from every once in a while to see if the things that are in my heart, the things I truly believe, Align with the word of God. That's what Paul's telling the Corinthians. And that's essentially by asking this question. Where do we buy bread? That's what Jesus is doing for Philip. He's giving him a test. He's testing his faith. Verse 6 goes on to tell us, Jesus didn't need to know where to buy bread. You know, that's that's a good uh, a lot of times when you, you know, I, I've heard this before, that that a good, a good lawyer or a, a person asking questions, you know, you got a witness on the stand and the lawyer's asking questions, the lawyer really never asks a question that they don't already know the answer to. I hate to equate Jesus to a lawyer, but it's kind of the same thing going on here. Jesus is asking a question that he already knows the answer to, And that's the fact that there's probably nowhere in town with enough bread, and they don't have enough money to begin with. But it says Jesus, there in verse 6, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus already knew he was going to do this miracle. He was just checking to see if Philip was on board with his plan. So it's a good place for us to stop and pause and ask ourselves this question. Are we on board with Jesus' plan for our life? Or are we too busy trying to figure out how we're going to do it ourselves? Because we find out the latter there is exactly what Philip was doing. Philip failed the test. That's the second point this morning. Philip failed the test. Thinking back into college to a test I didn't fail, I... uh, (laughs) Thankfully, there were more of those than the other. But uh, I thought about one specific time. and I think I've told this story before, too. I had a professor. His name was Dr. Hal Bass. And uh, he gave all essay tests. And he gave them in two parts, part A and part B. And in part A, you had two questions. And in part B, you had two questions. You picked one question from part A to answer and one question from part B to answer. And you had to write a very long essay on each one. Well, I answered part A. I knew both of those. And so I answered one of them very thoroughly. I got to part B. I didn't know the, I couldn't answer either one of the questions. So I just picked a topic that we had discussed recently in class and wrote an essay about it. And do you know, I still made a B on the test. He gave me partial credit because he said it was such a great answer. It just didn't answer any of his questions. Philip gives a good answer. In verse 7, he says, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have, we can read it this way, even a little. Notice what he did. He gave a good answer. He just didn't answer the question Jesus asked. Jesus says, where can we buy bread? And and Philip said, we don't have enough money. But Jesus didn't ask about the money. Jesus knew how much money they had. Do you think sometimes we miss out on the blessings of Jesus because we're too focused on our abilities instead of his. We're focused on what we can do facing this situation and completely forget that we have the creator of the universe by our side. Because hears the thing. The disciples knew what Jesus could do. At this point in his ministry, and at this point as long as they've been with him, they've seen the water turned into wine. They've seen Jesus heal sick people. They themselves have gone out all over the region, and they have healed people with the authority that Jesus gave them. They knew what Jesus could do. There was no question about Jesus' Ability to meet any need. Yet we get nothing really but sarcasm from Philip when Jesus says, where can we find bread? He says, we've only got 200 denarii. You really think we can feed this crowd with that? You know how the story ends? Jesus essentially says, tell the crowd to sit down. While you focus on what you can't do, I'm going to show you what I can do. And he demonstrates his power there before really the faithless disciples. And it says there in verse 12 so when they were filled, that's the crowd, that's the 5, 10, 15,000, however many people were really there, when they were filled. That word filled, the Greek word there translated filled, also means satisfied. Philip said, we don't have enough money. They had like six to eight months worth of wages is what 200 denarii was. Even with, with more than half a year's salary, we don't have enough to give everybody a crumb, Philip says. But Jesus fed them till they were satisfied. And what'd he do it with? A little boy's snack. It wasn't even enough. You could call it the little boy's lunch. It was a little boy's snack. Just a couple fish and a couple loaves of bread. And Jesus fed them until they were satisfied. And he did it in spite of the disciples' little bitty faith. He displayed his power in an amazing way. But there's one more thing I want you to see before we're done this morning. Something that I think we may often miss as we read a story like this. Even though Philip failed the test, we see the grace of the Savior towards the faithless disciples. Verse 13 says, therefore, or back up to verse 12, So when they were filled, Jesus said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, So that nothing is lost. Verse 13 says, Therefore they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who were eaten or who had eaten. The people weren't eaten, but they had eaten. I'm talking about making a mistake reading the Bible. A tradition in that day among in the Jewish tradition, when when there was a feast meal. They didn't do like us greedy Americans often do, and, you know, completely clean our plate. Their mother probably wasn't there telling them about the starving children in Africa, and boy, they wish they could eat that, so you better clean your plate. Now, they left a little on their plate, and they left it on purpose. It was the servants' portion. And when the servants came back around to clean up afterwards, the little bit of food left on the plate was there for the servants. That's the way the servants were taken care of. William Barclay, the the Greek scholar, says that this is most likely the thought process behind why people left some food there at their place. And something else we need to understand is that that day, in that day, the typical Jewish traveler, the typical Jewish person, carried a jug shaped basket when they were out and about, when they traveled, because they had to abide by the kosher dietary standards. And if they're traveling, there may not be kosher meals where they're at, so they carried this basket with their own food to make sure it met their dietary standards. And the Jew and his basket were a very well-recognized figure in that day. And Jesus tells the disciples, take your basket and go collect the leftovers. And it says they filled up, all 12 of them filled up their basket. I read that and I say, that's Jesus saying, you didn't trust me. You didn't trust me completely. But I'm not going to leave you hanging. I'm still going to fulfill your needs. I could meet their needs, and I'm going to meet your needs, even though you didn't trust me completely. That is his amazing grace at work. There's a great application for this whole story that we can apply to our own lives because I don't have to convince you of this, I don't think, but we all face difficulty from time to time, don't we? We all face times of struggle, we all face times of adversity, and uh, we're going to face times when we just don't have the resources to do it on our own. That may be physical resources, that may be emotional resources or spiritual resources, but Jesus allows us to face those tests of our faith. When we come right to the brink and say, we don't have enough. Jesus allows us to face those. Sometimes, as we see here, Jesus created the test. And he does it, number one, to see whether or not we're going to depend on him. And number two, so he can prove to us that he's our only source of surviving and passing those tests. James tells us there's a purpose to test. In James chapter 1, verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Perfect and complete. That's not talking about our actions. We're sinners. As long as we're on this earth, none of us is going to be perfect but he's saying these tests work to perfect our faith, ought to grow our faith, ought to cause us to depend more on him because we think back and we say, hey, remember last time I faced this test? I remember how God met that need. And because I remember how he helped me through that test, my faith is stronger to face the next one. And that's the way he works. I believe that's what's happening here in the beginning of this story before he he does this miracle. Don't you think it grew the faith of the disciples to watch Jesus take that little boy's snack and feed the multitude? The question for us is whether we're going to allow Jesus to use the tests and trials in our lives to grow our faith. As we prepare for our invitation this morning, You know, that's the question on the table. When we face tests, it's not if we face tests and trials in life, but it's when we face tests. That's what James said. James said, be happy about it. He said, count it joy when you face tests and trials. But when that happens in our lives, are we going to trust him? Maybe you're facing a test. Maybe you've been facing a test and you hadn't been trusting him about it. No time like today to turn to him and say, Lord, I trust you. There's no time like today, no time like the present to stop trying to fix it ourselves and allow him to step in and show us what miracles he can work. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never trusted him in the first place. You've never, you've never trusted him to save you. You, You're facing the biggest test any of us face, and that's whether or not we're going to trust him for salvation. And the thing is, if you haven't, you have no hope for today, and you have no hope for eternity. Your only hope for today, your only hope for eternity, is to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And Paul made it so clear when he said that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's all about placing your faith in him because that's one test you can't pass on your own. Whatever the Lord's laid on your heart this morning, let's take care of that as we stand and sing.